signed into law by President Nixon, Title IX of the Education Amendments of 1972 was designed to prevent sex discrimination in the realm of education. Over the past 30 years, the law's identity has been shaped by a combination of litigation and government-issued documents that focus on intercollegiate athletics. Like any public policy, Title IX has caused a storm of debate. As you sit ringside at tonight's Title IX bout, you will hear supporters and critics argue all sides of the issue. It is my hope that after listening to the facts presented by the five panelists, you will leave this room with a better understanding of the controversial Title IX and its impact on the future of college sports. Now to introduce the five speakers. Beginning with Jeff Orleans, furthest to your left. Mr. Orleans, the Executive Director of the Council of Ivy Group Presidents since 1984, is a 1967 cum laude graduate of Yale College. He earned his law degree from Yale Law School in 1971. Mr. Orleans served as an attorney in the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare's Office for Civil Rights and in the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission from 1971 to 1975. As the principal author of the 1975 regulations of Title IX, Mr. Orleans continues to write and speak in support of the law. Donna Lopiano, Executive Director of the Women's Sports Foundation, is recognized as one of the 100 most influential people in sports. She received her bachelor's degree from Southern Connecticut State University and her master's and doctoral degrees from the University of Southern California. Dr. Lopiano served as the University of Texas Director of Women's Athletics and the President of the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. She is currently a member of the U.S. Olympic Committee's Executive Board. A star athlete herself, Dr. Lopiano is a member of the National Sports Hall of Fame and is a primary supporter of Title IX. Unfortunately, Professor Zimblis had an emergency with regard to his work with the NBA Players Association contract negotiations. So coming to New Jersey on such short notice, I am pleased to introduce Dan Folks. Dr. Folks received his Bachelor of Science from the University of Tennessee, his MBA from the University of Maryland, and his PhD from Georgia State University. He is presently the faculty athletics representative and the director of the accounting program at Transylvania University in Kentucky. Since 1994, Dr. Folks has authored the NCAA's biannual report entitled Revenues and Expenses of Intercollegiate Athletics Programs, Financial Trends and Relationships. Cited in NCAA News and USA Today and interviewed on ESPN and CSNBC, Dr. Folks will highlight the impact of revenue-generating sports on Title IX compliance. Deborah Perry, Senior Fellow for the Independent Women's Forum, serves as an advocate for women's progress and education in Washington, D.C. She received her undergraduate degree in communications from Florida State University and her graduate degree in international economics from Georgetown University. Ms. Perry served as a political appointee for President George H. Bush. She's the co-author of Unfinished Business, a Democrat and Republican take on the 10 most important issues women face, and serves as a regular guest on political programs aired on CNN, Fox News Channel, and MSNBC. Ms. Perry and the IWF oppose the Title IX gender quota. Clay McEldowney, class of 1969, holds a Bachelor of Science in Engineering from Princeton University and a Master's Degree in Civil Engineering from New Jersey Institute of Technology. 
In addition to being a partner in Studer and McEldowney PA, a civil engineering consulting firm, Mr. McEldowney is the secretary treasurer of the College Sports Council. The organization is a co-plaintiff with the National Wrestling Coaches Association in a lawsuit filed against the U.S. Department of Education over Title IX's policy interpretation. A former wrestling captain, Mr. McEldowney served as chair of the Friends of Princeton Wrestling and successfully fought to save the program from elimination due in part to Title IX gender equity regulations. He is critical of the current interpretation of the law. Title IX bout will consist of five rounds. Each panelist will be answering one question in depth and responding to four others. Following those rounds, the panelists will accept questions from the audience. After the question and answer session, the event will conclude with a final round in which each speaker will very briefly state his or her conclusion and solution to the Title IX controversy. Round one begins with Mr. Orleans. Grant Taff, Executive Director of the American Football Coaches Association, has stated, it is not Title IX that is the issue, it is the interpretation. The interpretation has in some ways been illogical, unfair, and contrary to congressional intent. Mr. Orleans, as a principal author of the 1975 Title IX regulations, how do you respond to Mr. Taft's quote and the controversy surrounding Title IX's current interpretation? Well, more I'd start uh, on behalf of the panelists by thanking you for inviting all of us tonight and giving us the chance to be here. <laughs> Having said that, I think my friend and colleague Grant is badly mistaken. Um, there's no question in my mind that the Title IX regulations are not only entirely legitimate, but a very proper and full explanation of what Congress intended when it passed Title IX. We can talk later about logic and, and fairness in the way people have tried to comply with those regulations. I want to talk for my next three and a half minutes about congressional intent. Part of the problem with this is that, as is often true in broad statutes, there's very little legislative history that actually talks about athletics in the Title IX legislative history. And what you do at a time like that is you try and infer from a wide variety of sources what Congress meant. There's six ways we can know that the Title IX regulation does what Congress intended. The first is that Congress said it was reaching education programs and activities. And since we all in college athletics believe that athletics are educational and should be considered as providing educational value, it's very clear that they should be covered. Indeed, if they're not covered, then big money athletics has to be taxed and subjected to the antitrust laws, which my friend Grant Taft does not want to do. Um, secondly, Congress knows very well how to exempt something from a statute when it wants to, and it clearly chose not to exempt athletics from Title IX. It passed numerous other exemptions to Title IX. It was asked to exempt athletics from Title IX with something called the Tower Amendment, and it declined to do so. Thirdly, there's very clear precedent in a statute called Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which deals with race discrimination and on which Title IX was based. 
that athletics is explicitly covered by the statute, and there's ample judicial precedent to make that clear. And fourth, it's very, very clear that this is a legitimate exercise of governmental power, not just as a civil rights matter, but as an exercise of Congress's ability to condition the way it grants money. Congress said, we're going to give money to schools and colleges, federal money, to provide full opportunity for all Americans who go to those schools and colleges. It's entirely consistent with that for Congress to say, we don't want to waste talent by denying opportunity in these programs on the basis of gender. And we believe that educational opportunity extends throughout the institution, not just in the classroom, but to extracurricular activities and to athletics. If that's the goal of Title IX, which is to make sure that federal money is spent to maximize educational opportunity, then you have to cover all the ways that boys and girls, men and women, can secure that educational opportunity and can experience it. And athletics, as I said earlier, is a major component of education at the college level. There is one way in which um, what has happened in the 30 years since Title IX was passed was not intended by Congress. And that is that there has been for many years uh, a sad lack of leadership on the part of many folks, and I mean here not coaches and administrators, but trustees and presidents, in implementing Title IX in a fair way, in a way that provides equal opportunity for men and women, regardless of what sports they play, and regardless of the kinds of institutions in which they play those sports. From my perspective, the real issue in Title IX enforcement and the real issue about logic and fairness is not in the regulations themselves and not in the way uh, that the courts have interpreted them. It is in the strange and unhappy and unfortunate reluctance of so many people in positions of educational leadership to look out, first of all, for their students rather than for their own parochial or political interests and provide real opportunity for all male and female athletes in all kinds of colleges in America. That's, wow. That's really impressive. Four minutes. Four minutes on the nose. How did you do that? I timed myself. I can't handle that pressure. I'm out of here. Wow. Dr. Loviano, you can begin. And then I, you- I obviously agree with everything that Jeff just said. And it's hard to add anything, but let me just add um, at two points that um, all of the Title IX regs have been upheld by eight of eight federal circuit courts of appeals. Uh, so you'll hear this panel address things like quotas, things like interest, things like, you know, all the criticisms of Title IX. The thing to keep in the back of your mind is the courts have fully supported um, the, the regulations and the guidelines as they're written. And I, I think, second, um, it's really important to understand that not only Congress, but the American public supports Title IX as it's written. Seventy percent of the American public, according to recent polls by USA Today, by NBC uh, News, um, you know, clearly state that they support the law as it is written. They truly believe that our daughters uh, and sons should be treated equally. Um, let me say, first of all, I'm a recovering CPA, um, which I did for years when I was working for a living before I went back to graduate school. And my area especially happens to be income tax. And if, if interpretation, implementation, or enforcement of any law was an adequate excuse to do away with that law, there certainly would be no internal revenue code. And 
I think people with what I consider to be poor priorities are using uh, interpretation and implementation difficulties as an excuse uh, for noncompliance. I have to wait till the time goes back because <laughs> I don't want to be cheated of any time. Um, Certainly, the Independent Women's Forum does not come from a position that we are against Title IX, but we are very concerned about this watering down of the three-pronged test where there's been so much emphasis just on the proportionality issue. Uh, so it's certainly an issue that we'll get more into specifically as I'm going to talk about a, a specific court case. But we want to make sure that laws such as Title IX started from one place and then the interpretation just grew and grew and grew onto this 10,000-pound gorilla. So it's so beyond the intent of Congress, and we need to wheel it back in and figure out what's the fairest way that we're providing equitable access for women and for men, but at the same time making sure that it's not at the expense of one another. Pretty good, huh? Boy, that was good. Yeah. <laughs> well, this end of the table, there's not much more to say. Uh, Jeff, I agree with a lot of what you had to say, and uh, I know you're up on um, uh, what went into the original regulations, and uh, the government definitely has a play in this. Um, I represent a group who believes that um, one branch of the government has taken the wrong way, and uh, as we get through this tonight, hopefully I'll be able to give some explanation as to uh, what the right way is. Okay, I've been told that that clock is really loud, so we're gonna, we're gonna stop with the clock, so I'll just give you four, three, and one. I guess this will be your stop, please. You don't mind the pressure. <laughs> um, so I'm moving on to round two. Dr. Lopiano. Supporters of Title IX, like the Women's Sports Foundation, claim that providing athletic opportunities for females breeds interest in sports. Title IX critics say that females are not interested enough in sports to support the legally mandated expansion of opportunities. Dr. Lopiano, what do you see as a solution to this circular argument? Well, I think it's the wrong question. Title IX is not an equal interest law. It is a non-discrimination statute. Uh, it looks at whether or not there is equal opportunity to participate. Uh, and the interest argument has been brought up by colleges and universities who would like the public to believe that somehow girls aren't as interested in sports as boys and therefore should be getting less opportunities. Think of how ri ridiculous the notion is. Down here at the high school level, there are fully six and a half million boys and girls playing in high school sports. They're vying for less than 400,000 participation opportunities at the college level, 400,000. They're vying for close to a billion dollars in athletic scholarships. They are vying, as everybody knows, for pre preferred admissions into the nation's best colleges and universities. Uh, and to, to suggest that girls aren't as interested in boys in getting that golden ring is ludicrous. Uh, to, so the question becomes, um, not even a question. The recognition is you cannot meet the interest of either men or women 
in those opportunities. You can't begin to meet that interest. All you can do is fairly apportion those benefits and those opportunities to play. And that's what Title IX is about. It, it gives um, institutions a, um, a guideline uh, on how to go about making sure you're not discriminating on the basis of sex. And it uses proportionality as a definition of equal opportunity consistent with the way it's used in all discrimination law. Um, that the first thought is you can't allege discrimination if the population that supposedly is being discriminated against is present in equal proportion to its present in the larger population. So it looks at the school population as the correct proportion in which to define equal opportunity. And in that, it is consistent um, with um, all non-discrimination law. I think another thing that people should know is that these these tests that people are talking about in terms of the three-prong test, the prong one is that definition of proportionality. Uh, a school can say, hey, look, I'm not discriminating on the basis of sex as long as I can show that my proportion of athletes is the same as the proportion of males and females in the student body. The other two prongs are acceptable ways that you can justify a departure from proportionality. So there is no quota requirement. There is no fixed number requirement to Title IX. You can use the weakest prong known to womankind or mankind, uh, which is to show you're gradually increasing opportunities for the underrepresented gender, which is prong two, or you can show that, hey, I'm really doing a really good job of uh, providing opportunities for both genders. Uh, there's not much more I can do here. I'm fully meeting the interests and abilities of, of my kids. Therefore, I should not have to um, meet proportionality. And that's what Title IX is all about, and it is ultimately fair. Good. Not much to add to that. I, I agree, Donna. I, I, would, um, I would, however, assert, and I'm not sure we've proven this, but it's certainly my opinion that demand is, is a function of opportunity. And, and we should not look at it the other way, that opportunity be a function of demand. Uh, if if we were not all given opportunities other than what we knew when we were very young, we'd all still be sitting in front of Sesame Street. Um, and I happened to have done uh, accounting and tax work for uh, the Atlanta Falcons and Braves, and at the time, the Atlanta Chiefs, which was in the, the original uh, attempt at professional soccer in this country. Uh, and it became really clear when that professional soccer league failed, the reason was that there was no demand because there was no opportunity at the grassroots level. And, and soccer at that point, organized soccer at that point said we have to make opportunities available for kids to play. And kids will take that opportunity, that will create the demand, and it's exactly what happened. And I actually want to follow up on your point because I think we need to have a real honest conversation about you could not just look at the issue of opportunity at the college level, but we need to really go back and not dismiss the socialization of girls versus the socialization of boys. There's nothing wrong if a little girl dances all her life and wants to maintain doing some level of dance through college, and then we need to maybe relook and reevaluate the definition of sports overall. But their definitive is a drop of interest from the high school level, the junior high level,
going up to the college level with regards to girls' interest in sports. And I can speak from my own perspective. I've been an athlete my entire life. There was that period in that four-year undergraduates that I wanted nothing to do with sports because I wanted to concentrate on other things that college life had to offer as I was a first-timer living on my own. So I would have to say that we need to look deeper into the issue and why there is that drop-off from the high school level to the college level with regards to girls and sports. Well, I couldn't disagree more with uh, Mrs. Lopiano. Um, and uh, I'll key on two points. One is the interest. Um, I think that um, quite clearly women and men do not have the same interest in a lot of things. Um, having raised a daughter and a son and having lived with women and with men, I can uh, tell you from personal experience that the interests are not the same. And I think that translates over to sports. Uh, possibly over time, given uh, more grassroots participation for girls at early age, that that interest level will increase and may even someday uh, become at a level very close to the men. But right now, it is not. It has increased because of in expanded uh, opportunities at an early age for girls. Um, the fact that uh, men far outnumber uh, women in the uh, intramurals, for instance, to me is a demonstration of the change in or lack of, 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 of parity in interest. Um, as far as the use of the three prongs, I think uh, most of us who are into this realize that the first prong, the proportionality prong, is the rule of the land and that the other two prongs really have little to do with uh, the compliance test for the uh, federal government. Don asked the question we're all trying to answer as um, what is fair? And it strikes me that the hard part about this is that in most civil rights statutes, what you try and do is eliminate separation. You try and make sure that everybody who's qualified to be in an activity uh, can be in that activity together. That's what Title IX did in uh, professional education and undergraduate education. Um, it, it did it in shop and home ec, you know, at the eighth grade level. Do they still use those terms, shop and home ec? Um, uh, they did it in law school, did it in medical school, eliminated huge uh, pieces of, of really insidious discrimination, which m most of you, fortunately, uh, know only from the history books, but which some of us remember as being very real and very evil. Um, but we eliminated that discrimination by opening doors and saying, let's all come and be in the same classroom together. And the very difficult piece of athletics in Title IX is that we're trying to come up with a quality by definitionally picking separate programs. And we're not used to doing that. It means that we have to look at what makes people different rather than at what makes them similar. Um, it's very hard to do that. And uh, one of the reasons that we're having as much trouble we have is that um, the executive branch and the legislature at a very key time in the development of Title IX walked away from their responsibilities to define uh, Title IX in athletics, walked away from their responsibilities to implement it, uh, and left colleges and, and universities um, uh, in, in, a, in good faith, leaders, leaderless, uh, and in bad faith, uh, free to continue to discriminate. Um, I'd really disagree with Deborah's characterization that there's a drop-off of it. I have to ask you to, sorry. to stop. You're not allowed to. Well, oh, we'll, I'm sorry. we'll Did give I you. Start this? Did I start this? Yeah. I <laughs> 
You'll have opportunity in audience questions. You have a yellow card down there? (laughs) Red, red. (laughs) Um, Moving on to round three. Advocates of Title IX often point to bloated football budgets as a cause of compliance problems. In your opinion, Professor Folks, are big-time college sports and the revenue they generate for a school helping or hurting athletic opportunities? Thank you, Mara. I think the answer to your question probably is yes and no and and a definite maybe. Um, I, I think it's widely believed that football and men's basketball are supporting all other intercollegiate uh, sports. And that's true at some schools. And forgive me for throwing numbers at you, but it's my job. Um, in Division 1A, for instance, almost 70% of Division 1A schools' football programs will show a profit. And that profit, on average, is about $7 million, $7.4 million. In Division 1A men's basketball programs, two-thirds of, of those programs show a profit profit of almost $3 million, 2.7. But that's approximately 75 to 80 schools out of over 1,000 members of the NCAA. For all the other divisions, uh, the numbers are either negative or very small. In Division I AA, for instance, 19% of schools report profit from football, but that profit is only about $300,000. The other 80% are showing losses. So the, <clears throat> the numbers in... in uh, in football, for for all the other schools, football is an expensive sport. Um, since ticket sales represent about 26% of total revenues for Division I-A schools, it's not bowl money, it's not contributions, 26% of all revenues come from ticket sales. Football and men's basketball are the only two sports where we have any potential at all to show a profit in Division I-A. Um, and for some, these two are clearly... Uh, providing opportunities for the other sports. I can't argue with that. I do want to make two points, however, which sort of mitigate this. Football, and to some extent men's basketball in Division I-A, is a story of the haves and the have-nots. The 60 or so BCS conference schools uh, who are selling between 80 and 100,000 tickets every weekend or perhaps six or seven weekends during the fall for football games are those same conferences that are sending six or seven teams every year to the men's postseason uh, basketball tournament. Those schools are making money. Uh, indeed, their overall athletics programs are making money. On the other end of the spectrum are who I call the pretenders, the other end of Division 1A. Bowling Green State University in Ohio, for instance, at one time last fall had a football team that was 8-0. and They were undefeated. Their ninth game was at home. They sold 15,000 tickets. Bowling Green has no chance to make money. Football is a drain for them. For the preponderance of schools, the have-nots, football is a very expensive sport. The other point I want to make is about systemic waste in in, um, intercollegiate athletics in general, but Division I in, in particular. Even for the schools showing profits from football, there's sufficient waste in the programs, which if we're, we're eliminated, would support several other uh, additional sports. This waste is systemic, it's unnecessary, and it's extremely costly and could be done away with without having any negative impact on competition. This results in severe sacrifices that are felt on both the other men's programs and the women's programs, certainly. As a result, largely as because of, of football and men's basketball, 
In Division I-A, the average cost per male student-athlete is about $34,000, and we're spending approximately $20,000 for every female athlete. The total cost of a men's program in Division I-A is almost $11 million. That's more than two and a half times the total cost of the women's program, which is at about $4.5 million. Football and men's basketball by themselves account for about 35% of the total budget in Division I-A. Final point, we cannot separate the arms race from gender equity issues. Primarily football is where the arms race is taking place, primarily football and men's basketball. And the arms race is very real. It's taking place all, uh, primarily in salaries and facilities. Spending on football, for instance, since 1985 in Division I-A has increased almost $4 million. Spending on men's basketball since 1985, that same period, has increased about a million and a half. These two sports together, over since 1985, increased spending over $5 million, which is more than the total amount we're spending on women's programs today. The impact of this increase in spending is felt not only on the women's programs, but on other men's programs as well. Uh, so to answer your question, with big-time sports, we're usually talking about football and men's basketball. Uh, if you forgive the double negative, football never has no impact. It always has some impact. First of all, Professor, I have to compliment you on your initial response to the answer because it's better than any answer I've heard from a Washington politician. I love the yes, no, maybe it's perfect. <laughs> I've got to use that. Um, while we've done a little bit of research on the impact of football and how football can account or help support women's support uh, sports and more in the Big Ten schools, and we found there's a direct correlation from those profit-driven sports such as football. Uh, I certainly can't comment on it because it was research that was done prior to my time, but what I can say is when we look at football, because there's so much conversation almost in an antagonistic relationship, we know that it is an important contribution to the overall experience in college from the undergraduate time through your alumni years, and we know that any opportunity that alumni have to support their undergraduate only brings attention to that particular school, and if there's a need for additional women's sports, then it certainly can be raised through the use of a successful football program. Well, I fail to see the connection between the excesses in football, which I'm not going to dispute nor uh, come into as a, from a perspective of advocacy for what are perceived and real excesses in, fo in football, and the interests that may be out there for what uh, former President Bowen has termed the lesser priority sports. If there are excesses in football with respect to um, money spent, or even with the numbers on the team, I still don't see the connection uh, of that, and I see that as a separate problem that the NCAA may need to tackle, literally. The um, interests in the lesser priority sports um, are, are a totally separate um, situation. The funding for the uh, lesser priority sports is, is accomplished 
uh, primarily um, on a program by program basis, and there is some help from from uh, the priority sports in the funding. But I would uh, disagree on that premise of connecting football with uh, the interests in both men and uh, female uh, athletic programs. Well, I think football is it, um, and I'm glad that Dan uh, asked it to the table. Um, and I think it's it because um, I, I must disagree with Clay. I think the dollars of football uh, make a difference. The way football is conducted um, at almost every level uh, in Division One and in Division Two is just enough more expensive than it needs to be to be the difference between a fully equitable program for men and women who want to play any sport, including football, and to force institutions uh, to make uh, much harder choices than than they would otherwise. If you look at uh, institutions that decline to add sports or that eliminate sports, they're almost always doing it not, they say, because of Title IX reasons, but because of financial reasons. And if you look at the way they conduct their football programs, they are almost always spending the kind of excess money on football that they could use to provide other opportunities instead. The issue is not can we have football and other men's sports and other women's sports. The issue is whether people will exert the leadership to be able to provide that. There's no doubt in my mind that we can. I obviously agree with uh, Jeff, but a couple of uh, other points. One, um, I think the public thinks there is something to the argument that, well, football's a problem. Why don't we just get rid of them? Let's not count them. Um, And you can't do that. You can't take an expenditure on uh, a whole bunch of men and say, well, let's not count all these benefits to men. I mean, they're not a member of a third sex. Uh, so football has to be included. Second, there can never be an economic justification for discrimination. Never. A school can't say, well, I know it's a federal law, but I can't afford it. Picture yourself the, the, the mother of a, or father of a child in a wheelchair. And can you imagine a high school saying, I'm sorry, I can't afford to build the ramp up to the classroom so your child can access a school because I don't have the money. It's a federal law. You gotta do it. You gotta find it. You gotta find the way to do it. Um, I don't think there's any question that there's a direct connection between the excesses in football and basketball and the excluding of or the discontinuing of men's sports. Um, you only have so much money. And if we can really, you know, control our expenditures, then that excessive expenditure on football could be supporting men's minor sport. And then, you know, last but, but not least, uh, nobody's against football in this, um, uh, in this environment. What we'd all like is for football to be more profit-making. Uh, it's fine for it to spend money on itself as long as there's an acceptable return on investment. Most of these football schools are spending gobs of bucks on themselves and aren't returning anything to anybody. So we need to control cost. We need to reduce salaries, reduce travel, uh, reduce scholarships, get it down to a level where it's manageable and it is profit-making so it can fund a lot more sports for men and women. Thank you. Okay. Moving on to Ms. Ferry. Regarding the landmark Title IX litigation, Cohen v. Brown University, the Independent Women's Forum submitted a brief in support of the Brown position. Ms. Perry, 
Can you explain why your organization defended a university that was allegedly discriminating against female athletes? Well, first off, we don't see it that way. In fact, we want to just dissect the origins of this case so there's clarity for why we supported the amicus brief in support of Brown University. At the time of the lawsuit, Brown University had 15 women's teams, which was almost double of any other NCAA division schools. One little school by the name of Harvard only had a more generous support of its women's programs. So at the time of the lawsuit in 1996, the last thing that Brown University president, a man by the name of Vardin Gregorian, ever imagined was a lawsuit. He was facing a budget shortfall of $1.6 million very commonplace for universities at this time and continue to be so. So he employed a mandate to cut $79,000 from their $5 million athletic budget. So what was the fairest thing to do? Well, they thought the fairest way to mandate these cuts was not even to cut teams, but to downgrade two men's teams, downgrade two women's teams. So we're talking about men's golf and water polo, and women's volleyball and gymnastics. And it didn't mean that they couldn't continue to compete in NCAA competition. They just were going from a position where they were fully funded to becoming partially funded and then having to find the additional financial support. So along comes a man by the name of Arthur Bryant, who's the executive director of an organization called Trial Lawyers for Public Justice, And he was the architect of a lot of the lawsuits that were going on with Title IX across the country. So Mr. Bryant walks into the door of Brown University and says, look, if you don't reinstate those two women's teams, we're going to file suit. But I'll go away quietly if you do reinstate those two teams and you pay my legal fees. Well, Gregorian refused to settle. He didn't appreciate people attacking an educational institution for their own financial gain. So they ended up going to court over this. And what was interesting about the lawsuit was nobody was arguing that women were not being given their fair share, that they didn't have the fair amount of equipment, coaching, practice time, and facilities. Nor could anybody complain that brown women were receiving fewer scholarships because there was no aid towards athletics at Brown at the time. They couldn't even argue that women had fewer sports teams than men at Brown because women's varsity teams actually outnumbered the men's teams. So what did the plaintiffs come up with? They said that the fact that Brown participated in sports, that women, rather, at Brown participated in sports at lower rates than men Therefore, they were discriminated against. It's true. At the time, Brown's population was 51% women. But the interest level or the sports provided at the time for women were 38 to 39%. So in defense, Brown University surveyed like crazy. They talked to their students. They talked to anticipated students. They talked to people who never would even think of going to Brown. And what did they find? Over and over again, that women's interest in college sports was not at the same level. In fact, 
on intramural teams, which were purely recreational teams for anyone who wanted to play, they found that men outnumbered their interest three to one. And in Brown Club sports, which were self-funded teams, not eligible for NCAA competition, men outnumbered women eight to one in the interest level. Brown even brought in Brian O'Reilly, who was the head of SAT operations and the development of College Board, just to say in a random survey that some of the students who were interested in going to Brown, that 60% of men were interested in sports as compared to 40% of the women. They even surveyed outside of the traditional definition of sports and looked at the interest level in dance and music and drama, and they found much higher levels of participation among women than they did men. But nobody was arguing that the sex ratio in dance, drama, and music mirrored the overall population at Brown University. No one was talking about decreasing the opportunities for women in dance. So why were they singling out sports? So irrespective of all this data, the plaintiffs would argue that such data is irrelevant. And what the First Circuit did was mandate that Brown, under the law, was not just to accommodate women who were interested in sports, but to cultivate athleticism, to really go out there and say to these women that the duty of their school was not only to fulfill demand, but to create it. So this argument was a transformational expansion of the meaning of the three-prong test. It said that if a school wants to eliminate teams before women have their fair share, it can only eliminate men's teams. So if the demand is not there, which we know that to be the fact at Brown at the time, not only did they need to create a quota system, but a make-believe one. So unfortunately, Brown, before it was all over, went through four separate lower court rulings spanning 53 months at a cost of millions and millions of dollars. And then on April 21st, 1997, after many appeals and a, a hopeful appeal to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court ruled that Cohen versus Brown was allowed to stand because they were not going to get involved. Just before I was about to ask you to wrap it up. Okay, moving on to Clay. I finally agree with someone here. <laughs> anyway, um, what Deborah said um, shows uh, the underlying problem with the current enforcement policies of Title IX that have led to wholesale um, devastation of men's uh, lesser priority sports, men's Olympic sports. Um, the three-prong test, which uh, has been referred to, includes um, three ways to demonstrate compliance. Um, the third one being uh, pretty much, I think, as uh, Jeff may have written uh, in the uh, uh, first set of regulations in 1975, which is that the interests and abilities of uh, the sexes have to be met equally. Um, what Cohen versus Brown did was put the accent on proportionality and uh, it was a doomed uh, lawsuit because of the judge's um, interpretation. Every circuit court of appeals 
dealing with every kind of institution in the country, faced with the kind of case that came up at Brown, has done exactly what the First Circuit did. And it has said, every single Court of Appeals has said, when we're trying to define what are separately equal opportunities, we need to look at the way the institution seeks out those opportunities by recruiting, by giving scholarships, by choosing which teams to have, by deciding which teams to support. Schools are responsible for the kind of demand they create, as Dan said. It's not just the First Circuit, and it's not just Brown. And when, as Donna says, there are 15 or 20 or 25 times as many male and female senior athletes graduating from high school every year as there are freshman collegiate athletic opportunities, it's simply not possible, in my view, to argue that there is insufficient interest. The issue is, how do you measure equal provision of opportunity for these separate populations? And the best way we know in civil rights law, in education, in employment, in every kind of civil rights law you can look at, is to compare who gets the opportunities with who's in the pool of people, which in this case is undergraduate students. So I frankly believe that whether you agree with the First Circuit's analysis as it applied to Brown by itself or not, the law is very clear and the law is very right in this case. Yeah, I, I think uh, Deborah really, you know, engaged in a gross mischaracterization of the Brown lawsuit. The fact of the matter is that Brown fired a football coach, bought out his contract, it put the athletic department into debt to the tune of $200,000, cuts two women's teams, two men's teams, saves 65000 or so on the cutting of the, the women's teams. Uh, the very fact that it cut two women's teams and to say that those kids weren't interested in continuing to play is preposterous. Uh, that's why they were sued. They were sued because there were two teams that were, uh, were in force. Um, those kids were interested in playing, and they cut them. Title IX, contrary to what Deborah said, is not about the number of teams you have. It's the number of participants you have. It doesn't matter if, if Brown has 15 teams and every other school in the country has 40 teams. It's what are the women's participation opportunities at Brown compared to the men's participation opportunities at Brown. And the fact of the matter is women were only getting 38% of the opportunities to play. Um, and you look at the situation where... Um, she also said that 38% represents the I'm interest. To, I'm going to have to ask you to just. You bet. Uh, represents interest. It represented the opportunities to play, not the interest in playing. Deborah mentioned um, two things uh, that I want to get back to. Uh, clearly, the, the genesis of Brown's problem was budgetary. And I want to agree with Donna when she was agreeing with me that <laughs> if there are budgetary problems, then deal with the waste. Make football more profitable by, by dealing with the waste and you can and uh, clear your budgetary problems. The other is I want to get back to the interest issue. Um, and at the risk of repeating myself, if we provided opportunities over the last 15 years really is how old Title IX is uh, when we got serious about it, semi-serious about it. If we provided uh, opportunities only to the extent there was perceived interest, um, then we'd be where we were 15, 20 years ago. We would have the status quo, and status quo is not what we want. 
Uh, I think providing opportunities to pull interest is a noble cause. What saddens me most about Cohen v. Brown is that it's adversarial. Title IX, just like civil rights legislation, is the last place we need an adversarial arena. We should all be behind it and, and doing what's best for the people. Ms. Perry, I know you're probably, it's in the <laughs> answer back, but hopefully you can add it into the audience questions. Um, Mr. McEldowney, there's much more to Title IX than the often quoted line most people know. 1681B of Title IX continues with the section that prohibits unequal treatment of members of one sex due to participation imbalances with respect to the opposite sex. Mr. McEldowney, what is your opinion and that of your organization on this section of the law? Let me first say that uh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm here because I have a passion for athletics, for both male athletics and women's, uh, uh, women's athletics. Um, in 1993, when Princeton University dropped its wrestling program, I had no idea what Title IX was. I had, didn't have a clue. And uh, the uh, university gave a number of reasons why they dropped the program, and the Friends of Princeton Wrestling evaluated those reasons and could come up with no rational basis for having dropped the program other than gender uh, considerations. It was at that time that I did a quick study on Title IX and have maintained my interest ever since. Today, I'm working with the College Sports Council, which is an organization of coaches associations, and we have um, particip- we are a co-plaintiff in a lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Education over the current um, policy interpretations. Uh, the College Sports Council um, and I f- uh, fully support uh, the law, Title IX, and uh, we support uh, the notion of um, that there should be no discrimination on the basis of sex uh, in uh, athletics or in any other uh, activity. Um, as far as um, the section, Amora, that you pointed to, uh, the section of the law means that, uh, in my view, the Congress recognized that the intent of Title IX was not to establish uh, gender quotas uh, or require preferential treatment under any educational um, program or activity, um, that uh, the preferential treatment uh, was not to be established for, say, reparation for past discrimination. The regulations have evolved over time, uh, where the anti-discrimination uh, precept has become uh, uh, um, a rule for equal opportunity and currently a rule for statistical uh, and uh, or equal uh, participation um, for uh, um, athletics. The um, uh, Evolution of the enforcement policies uh, have run contrary uh, to the law's prohibition against granting uh, disparate or unequal treatment to one sex because right now it is providing preferential treatment uh, to, to one sex. Right now there are over 600 more women's teams than men's teams in uh, the effort to equal out the numbers. And uh, the... Um, uh, the number of uh, women's teams has uh, uh, grown uh, significantly, while the number of men's teams has decreased even more significantly in the NCAA. Um, effectively, the, uh, 
the, the current policy um, from 1996 and from 1979 uh, mandates the very discrimination that uh, Title IX prohibits all in order to meet a regulatory test that uh, Congress did not authorize the uh, Department of Education uh, to adopt. Um, I think Clay is absolutely right to decry the decrease in uh, opportunities represented by cuts in men's teams, but that's not what the law requires. What the law requires is that men and women, or girls and boys in secondary schools, have equal opportunity. If colleges choose to provide equal opportunity for men and women by having sponsoring the sport of football and by having very large football squads, then somewhere other opportunities for men who want to play other sports will be decreased in order to provide equal opportunity for men and women relative to their populations in the schools. That's basically what every single court of appeals in the country has said. The issue is not decreases in men's teams, as Donna has said. The, the issue is how do we shape men's opportunities and women's opportunities in an equitable way. And until we are all willing to unite to find out why it takes 110 football players to lose a bowl game or to go 0-12, we will not solve this problem. Male athletes are receiving 1.1 million more opportunities to play at the high school level. They're receiving 58,000 more opportunities to play at the college level. They're receiving 133 million dollars more in athletic scholarships each year. Uh, how many people in this room believe that women are getting preferential treatment and men are losing? Let me support something Donna said earlier also. Um, Clay and Deborah both speak of the number of teams offered, or number of teams sponsored. Uh, this isn't about teams, it's about number of participants. At the Division I-A level, which is what most of us want to hear about, uh, on average, the Division I-A school has 322 male athletes, 232 female athletes. And the difference, more than likely, is football. Um, and the other point I want to address is um, dropping sports and using Title IX as an excuse. At, at the Title IX town hall uh, meeting in Atlanta last fall, uh, we were there, and there were six wrestlers who drove 12 hours from a Midwestern school to get to Atlanta to testify. Uh, and their point was that their school had dropped wrestling because of Title IX, which is exactly what they had been told. Well, the same year that their school dropped wrestling, the school spent over $2 million renovating the athletics department's uh, offices, uh, enough money to support a wrestling program for between five and ten years. Gender equity issues are not about Title IX. They're about misplaced priorities and waste. Well, let me dispute the point that Donna made, um, talking about the level of opportunities for boys in high school, and that is you were talking about opportunities versus interest. 
if we want to have an honest conversation about little boys sitting down with their fathers, watching football, watching baseball, watching all the sports that are on television in a male-dominated sports arena, we've got to be honest of where the interest level is for little boys versus little girls. So I think as women's soccer tends to take shape and it has really come to the forefront in the last few years, we will see a lot more girls getting involved in soccer and playing not only at the high school level but inevitably at the college level as well. But that the fact remains that while the law's intent was not about affecting or taking away men's college teams, it is what is happening, and we need to make sure that in order to create an equitable situation, we're not harming another situation. It is now 8.30. We will take audience questions until roughly 9 o'clock. Please raise your hand, and when called upon, please state the name of the panelists to whom your question is directed before you begin the question. one in the back. Andrea. I'll start. I, I don't think, I certainly didn't mean to suggest that women and girls are not interested in sports. I just uh, meant to say that the uh, parity of interest between the sexes hasn't been demonstrated. That, it, uh, that equating outcomes and, partition rate and participation rates with interest goes counter to the law the original law, and it goes counter to the reality of what is out there right now. I, uh, I, I think we all would agree that participation and interest in women's athletics has increased over the years dramatically since when I was growing up. But to um, equate outcomes with interest uh, only serves to hurt uh, the male side of that equation. And um, two things that I had mentioned uh, intramural sports where men far outnumber women uh, as a measure of uh, interest and the fact that uh, men seem to be, and most coaches would agree, be more willing to serve on a second team or even a third team just to play, just to be part of the team, whereas women generally are not. Um, 
I don't disagree with what you're saying. And, in fact, uh, that's what I was just suggesting, that as women's sports tend to take more center stage, you will have little girls looking up to the Mia Hams of the world and say, I want to do that. But in addition to an interest in sports, women are also interested in dance and cheerleading and drill team and music and all sorts of things related to college life, not to mention just the whole social aspect of campus life, that are not accounted for in that interest level as well. So I think that instead of just cutting off where women's interest level lie within sports, we need to look at the greater framework of a young woman going to college and other things she may enjoy outside of the sporting realm as well. Uh, the Women's Sports Foundation gets queries from across the country um, about uneven access to sports participation opportunities. Just for your information, uh, in five of the 50 states where high school participation is roughly 49 percent, uh, high school enrollment is 49 percent female, 51 percent male, five states are already at 50-50 in terms of men's and women's athletic participation within one or two percentage points of, you know, what is required under the law. What that says is that there's plenty of interest out there. It's how many opportunities can I afford? How quickly can I add women's teams for them to fill them? What we're hearing is that where boys get to play varsity football at the high school level, JV football, ninth grade, freshman football, they won't, schools won't add a second women's soccer team, a third women's soccer team. They won't treat uh, women's expression of interest in the same way as men's uh, uh, expression of interest. So what you see when you see 42% participation rates is not any um, is not any relationship to interest. It's how many opportunities are schools willing to provide for women. Uh, they can fill tons more. Do we have a question for the other three panelists? Oh, I think if if um, Congress wants to have a rulemaking hearing, or the executive branch wants to have a rulemaking hearing, um, and ask uh, people to come and make suggestions and consider um, rewriting the regulation or the statute on the public record, that that's what democracy is all about, um, and that and that we ought to do that if there is interest in doing that. Unfortunately, what the current administration did was to take a commission that was, uh, whose, whose composition is hard to fathom, I think, and hold a series of uh, barely on the record hearings and then have a series of recommendations uh, which were not very well developed and which were voted on when not very much of the group was there, uh, not on the record, not subject to the kind of formal rulemaking that Congress or the executive branch does, and then say that they might actually or might not, you know, deal with those, with those suggestions. And I think you know, as a piece of legislative process or a piece of the political process, no, no matter which end of the table you're on here, that was terrible. Uh, and that there is, there's legitimate interest in this country for looking at 
uh, how the law is interpreted and what the law and the regulation says, and the political and governmental structure ought to respond to that. But while we're doing that, if we're going to do that, we ought to acknowledge that the reasons that we have some of the kinds of results that we have are not the way the regulation is written. The regulations give plenty of opportunity for different results. They have to do with the way that colleges have chosen, you know, to do what they do. Uh, the, the subtext that we're talking about here um, is that there are some men's sports that have been brutalized by college administrations. Um, I think you're probably someone who participates in one of those sports, because um, I know your coach, <laughs> um, and I'm glad he's here. And, um, you know, one of the hidden facts here is that more wrestling teams were dropped by colleges during the period when Title IX was not being enforced because there was a court order that prohibited its enforcement than before or since. That wasn't because of Title IX. That was because of economics. And the real issue here is not whether we can have football and wrestling and field hockey in an equal way. The issue is whether there are presidents and trustees who are going to have the courage to do that if it means going up against football coaches who make $800,000 a year and trustees who are also legislators and big donors. That's the issue. Another Well, it's not easy. Um, and nobody's going to do it until everybody's doing it. And that's the issue. Um, and we have tried uh, to limit coaches' hours in the past. We, at one time, we had um, a what we called a limited earnings assistant coach for basketball, um, and we put a salary cap on that position. And whoever was that assistant coach was designated, and and he or she could not earn more than I think it was eighteen thousand dollars or so, um, which is still more than I'm making a whole day. Um, and NCAA lost a lawsuit uh, because that was the NCAA as an organization was um, somehow prohibiting these people's right to make a living. Um, and I don't have a problem with that ruling. Um, my girlfriend and I are whatever you call people our age who do what we do. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Significant other. Um, we're at a University of Kentucky basketball game this past season, and during a timeout, I leaned over to her and I said, I said, Jill, you know, look down here on the bench and tell me what you see. And, and there were more men dressed in coat and tie than there were game uniforms. You know, so, so how many assistant coaches and, and managers do we need for a basketball team? How many assistant coaches do we need for a football team? Take 20 scholarships away from football and give them to, to the wrestlers and, and to water polo and plenty of other sports. Uh, you don't have to put the football team in a hotel the night before a home game. The last time Nebraska went to the Orange Bowl, it took almost 900 people with them. 
lost money. Nobody's making money on bowl games. Uh, so there are plenty of places to see it, and those places, this could be legislated at, at the organization level. This could be handled by the NCAA. The NCAA could put limits not on the amount of salary that we could pay, but on the number of assistant coaches we could have. Those limits are there now. We could limit the number of scholarships for a football team, and kids would still be lined up outside the stadium wanting to, wanting to play. Um, so it, it, some of this can be done at, at, the, uh, at the organizational level, I, I believe. Uh, it, what's really going to be hard to get at, a, a very large piece of, of the arms race is facilities. And, and facilities, spending money on facilities is all about recruiting. We don't really need to build a $20 million facility for training our athletes. You could spend $10,000 on a barn and another $2,000 on a set of weights. And the kids will train themselves. They'll be just as well trained because they'll work just as hard. But we want to bring a kid, a high school kid, in on, on the campus and say, do you want to train in our $20 million facility or do you want to train in, in that $10,000 barn over there? That, that's about recruiting. Uh, and who knows about salaries? You know, we're paying a basketball coach um, roughly ten times what we pay the President of the United States of America. Um, and I think that's some bad priorities. Although, with this president, I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> All right, moving, moving up. Good one. Coach New. You've never heard me use that term, Mike. No, you haven't. exception, I agree almost completely, Mike. An exception is that the problem for me is not something called the NCAA. The NCAA is just a bunch of schools and conferences that get together and give themselves that name. What we have is a set of schools and conferences within the NCAA, primarily the Division I conference, 1A conferences, 
that have chosen, as you've said, to concentrate their expenditures and their development primarily on football and men's basketball, now a little bit on, on women's basketball. And you're right that they have skewed where they have decided to invest their money. Um, now, how could they change those decisions? Well, it would be easy. We have, I think, 30 bowl games in Division 1A last year. I couldn't begin to tell you the, the names of, of all of these games, but I can tell you that with very few exceptions, as, as Dan knows better than I do, teams go to those games and come back in deficit. They don't make money from those games. They lose money from those games. So we could decide, 1A schools could decide, we're not going to play in these bowl games. We're going to tell our alumni they're going to have to go to New Orleans for some other reason during Christmas, and that's going to be the end of it. And we'll save that money, and we'll play Division One AA football, and, you know, get ourselves whipped by the eight Ivy League teams instead of getting ourselves whipped by Big Ten teams and save a ton of money and put that money into wrestling and water polo and field hockey and lots of other sports and have a much saner lifestyle. Now, I've lived and worked in other parts of the country besides, the you know, our kind of precious life here in the Northeast. And I know that big-time sports has a different meaning and a different impact outside the Northeast. It means something different in Nebraska and in North Carolina and in Arizona and in Minnesota than it does in uh, Massachusetts and New Jersey. But I also know that it is possible to make those kinds of decisions if people are willing. If I knew how to get people to do that, I would probably not only not be not only would I have solved the athletics problem, but I would have been in the Democratic presidential candidate debate the other night because I'd know something really about changing people's minds. I really don't know how to do that. But I know that it is practically doable if people have the will to do it. It's not an impossibility. And just another thought there. Um, now the NCAA is structu almost structurally incapable of making change right now. Division 1A has a psychological and... Um, legislative stranglehold on the rest of the membership. Uh, the rest of the membership feels that if they were to ever buck Division 1A's wishes in terms of football and basketball, that somehow all the schools that make all this money are going to pull out of the NCAA, and now they're not going to be able to get paid off for the rest of the Division 2, II, Division 3 championships. And structurally, the NCAA's um, you know, governance units give two to one weight Division One over Divisions Two II and Three, and Division One A over the rest of Division One. So it's a very difficult situation uh, that is an issue of will, and it's an issue of fear, and it's an issue of structure, uh, and something that the presidents haven't gotten together and said we have to confront this. Don, if I could add to that real, real quick, Mara, I'm sorry, but you're absolutely right. And what has happened in Division One A is the presidents have ceded their authority to the conference commissioners. And the conference commissioners in, in D1A now are the ones who are making the decisions. And those are the people who benefit most by, from the system the way it is now. Uh, I serve on a committee with a commissioner of the Big 12. And he looked at me one, one afternoon and he said, hey, look, don't ask me to make any changes here. He said, what I get paid to do is make as much money as I can for my 12 schools. And I'm doing a good job at it. And, and that's what I get paid to do. That's what I'll continue to do. Um. We're going to end the audience questions and move on to the final round. Um, I realize that all of you could speak for hours on your position. 
But can each of you give us, in 90 seconds or less, your solution, the knockout punch, so to speak, to the Title IX controversy? Want me to start more, or you want Clay to start? Want me to start? Okay. Well, I've got a different solution than when I came in, which was suggested by the gentleman uh, on that side. Um, I think we ought to have full, formal legislative hearings in Congress and let anyone who wants to testify with proposals for changing the law or the way it's interpreted change the law. And um, when Congress is done hearing that, we ought to let Congress make whatever changes in the law it wants to make. And when it's done, we ought to impose large personal civil fines for presidents of institutions which don't comply with Title IX, whatever the regulations say at that point, and we'll have compliance within a year. Yeah, I don't, I don't think the... I don't think there is a problem with Title IX. I think the dilemma is the dilemma of absence of will on the, on the part of college presidents to control costs so that more kids can get a chance to play in all sports. I think what needs to be done is probably Miles Brand needs to make a personal division, uh, visit to every Division I-A president and say, you're either with me or against me, uh, against me, we're going to institute a five-year strategic plan to reform intercollegiate athletics, and every one of you better vote for it. And if you don't, I'm not even going to try. And if you don't, I'm going to tell everybody you're not either. Well, this is your lucky day. I have all the answers. Um, <laughs> a little more specific, I think. I, I have five points. Number one, we, we must control and reduce the systemic waste that's in organized sports. Number two, we need either a shift in priorities or let's be honest about our priorities. If we would rather make the decision to spend money on AD's offices rather than the wrestling program, then let's at least be honest about it. Number three, we need better enforcement of Title IX as it stands now. In our 15 years or so, or 30 if you want to allege that, uh, history of Title IX, the Department of Education has never once prosecuted a case for noncompliance. Number four, we need to bring athletics back to the university. And I think this is a bigger problem in other parts of the country, perhaps. But we need to do away with the AD's office and create a dean of athletics. And let him or her go through the same budgetary process and the same faculty senate process that everybody else does. We're not here talking about the history department or the drama department or, or music. Why not? You know, what's the difference? If athletics is worth having as a part of the, of the university, then let's treat it the same as every other unit within the university. And number five, as the, uh, all three of my daughters are women. Um, they usually are. <laughs> And every wife I ever had was a woman. Uh, so that's my perspective. Um, too many of our decisions today are being made by white males. Um, and that's systemic also. Unfortunately, the people who decide who's going to make the decisions are white males. So uh, let's get some more people involved in the decision-making process.
The Independent Women's Forum has certainly come up with our overall recommendations, but I'm going to just hone in on two. Really, we just want a more realistic portrayal of women's interest instead of just taking this broad brush across the entire country and dictating what we think women's interests are. We have to be realistic and say, let's look at the definition of sport because the definition of sport as it stands is typical based on male-based sports from the get-go. We've got to recognize that there's an interest in cheerleading and drill team and dance. And these types of activities compete in a level that the traditional sport does as well. So why can't we be inclusive of these activities as sports? And the second thing that I think is really important is that each college campus should have the opportunity to survey its population and find out what the interest level are because northeast sports are going to be very different from southwest sports. And so whether this is done on a annual basis or every two years, whatever works for the university, the universities need to have a better assessment of what their student population is interested in. Well, I have to agree with Donna Lopiano that uh, there really isn't a problem with Title IX. The law is an excellent law. The problem has to do with the enforcement policies and the policy uh, determinations that have come down since the enactment of the legislation. And uh, the statistics will clearly show that uh, male participation uh, have been adversely affected. Something has to be done, and I think that the solution um, involves two things. One would be the repeal of the three-part test and its uh, implementing guidance. It is clearly a system that is broken. There are, there, it's breeding so much controversy. You can see it here at the table, and you could have seen it at the, at the hearings that uh, went on earlier uh, this year, last year. Uh, there needs to be a new system put into place. Jeff Orleans hit upon a very good point, and that is the process needs to be developed that would provide for adequate input, unlike the, the, uh, the hearings, uh, which really uh, were not uh, that conducive to coming up with a solution. And to, uh, uh, through the process, perhaps through a uh, legislative solution, um, come up with an answer that would uh, allow for meeting the interests of the students and not discriminate against either sex, not just the female sex or the male sex. And uh, the government should then step in with number two, number one, repealing the three-part test. Number two would be to provide schools and student-athletes with guidance on how to measure interest. Interest surveys were mentioned. Uh, that, was a dis that was discounted by the commission. What is wrong with interest surveys? What's wrong with finding out what students want to do? Isn't that what this is all about? It's not about profit. It's not about making money for the university. It's about meeting the needs of the student and meeting those interests and allowing both men and women to pursue those areas that they have an interest in. And uh, right now, the system is going exactly contrary to that, to a huge dimension, and needs to be corrected. This concludes Title IX Bout. I want to sincerely thank our five panelists for coming to Princeton University 
to share their thoughts on the law. I hope all of you enjoyed the event, and if you would like to replay this program on your computer, it should be available relatively soon on web media. Thank you. We're going to take a shot at this. It's easy enough up here. You did a good job. Yeah, it was. You did a great job. Hey, Dan, you have any messages for Brian?